Thank you for joining me in another episode of Breakaway from the Rat Race. I have another great show for you uh, following this, but I wanted to let you know that I have finished writing my first book oh, this way uh, called Stop Trading Your Time for Money. Uh, so this is a how-to guide for the middle class uh, to achieve financial freedom, do re early retirement, leave a legacy for your children. So this book is available for free for a few more days. Uh, if you want to get it, it's on Amazon, obviously. Uh, but uh, if you don't know where to find it and stuff like that, you can go on my website. It's called martelherrick.com and then slash forward slash book. And then in there, you can have a button that you can click and it's going to bring you to Amazon to the book. You can obviously search it uh, on Amazon. So stop trading your time for money. And... Um, yeah, by Eric Martel. So uh, I hope you enjoy the book. It's free again for another couple of days. Um, so please download it as soon as you can. And then uh, that's it. Let's get to the show. Well, welcome to another episode of Breakaway from the Rat Race. And today I have uh, the honor to uh, meet and discuss with uh, Brian Adams, is the, who is the president and founder of Excelsior Capital where he is uh, spearheading the investor relations and capital markets arms of the firm. Hi, Brian. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. Well, my pleasure. So, um, so tell us a little bit about kind of like your background. And I think that some of our, uh, of our, the listeners uh, may not know exactly what, what you mean and what is meant when we talk about capital markets and investor relationships. So tell us a little bit about kind of like what you do every day and uh yeah what you do every day yeah absolutely so as a brief background i'm a new yorker who married a nashville girl i moved to town about 15 years ago <laughs> i'm a recovering attorney so i practiced law for about four years and i got into the business because my wife's family has a single family office based here in nashville okay. and they had invested in commercial real estate over the last 25, 30 years. And so as I got exposure to some of the investments we were making and the sponsors and the general partners we were working with along with fund managers, I thought it was a great business and I wanted to get involved. So mm -hmm. started the company about 10 years ago and over that time have amassed a portfolio of commercial assets across multiple markets. And we can get into all that if you want. Um, mm -hmm. In terms of capital markets, investor relations, and how I spend my time. You know, at this point, we have a portfolio of around two and a half million square feet, and we're in 12 different markets. So uh -huh. we have 12 employees, and we're very fortunate to be able to have folks that only work on asset management, people that only work on acquisitions, that we have a yeah. controller, et cetera. That being said, as you know, and as your listeners know, commercial real estate, it's a very capital intensive business. Mm -hmm. And so I spend the majority of my time um, reaching out to prospective investors, um, working on our marketing efforts. And that involves, you know, investor relations, communications, reporting, <clears throat> increasingly doing a lot of content creation, inbound marketing techniques, given COVID, I'm not able to travel as much as I used to. Yeah. And so that's where I spend the, the bulk of my time, frankly. Yeah, I think that's very interesting. Uh, yeah, it's, we always, whenever you're in real estate, and I think uh, all, most of our listeners can, can relate to that, it doesn't matter what level you're at, uh, you're always somehow uh, are raising money for some, one reason or another, 
one reason or another. Uh, there was a, a one guy, in the, an investor in Canada, who used to say that it doesn't matter how much money you have, you're always short a couple of a couple of millions. And, um, <laughs> and that's so right. true. <laughs> and that's so true because we're always kind of, uh, I mean, everybody, all the investors that I know, we always kind of like reaching just slightly out of our reach in order to grow and expand. And then, um, so we always have to be maintaining good relationship and build the network all the time, whether we need money or not, because we know that eventually we're gonna need money. We're gonna find this this unicorn of a property that we must have, and uh, we wanna be ready to, uh, to get the investors uh, involved in there. Um, I have a question also that maybe some of our listeners may not be uh, aware of. Uh, if you can define for us what a single family, uh, a, a family office is. Yeah. So this is going to be um, a difficult uh, endeavor. It's very hard to define. The best way that I've heard it described is a family office is a corpus of assets. So, you know, a bucket of money that is meant to provide and maintain a certain quality of life for an exponentially growing family over multiple generations and avoid paying taxes. Mm -hmm. yeah. So what? in practicality, yeah. that just means that you have enough money that you're essentially running your own wealth management business mm -hmm. and your only clients are your family members. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so it's really a mindset as opposed to a dollar figure, because there are plenty of high net worth individuals and families that simply don't want to have a single family office because it's essentially having a small business mm -hmm. underneath your family. And it has a bunch of pros and cons that we can get into, but, but I think that's yeah. the best way to put it. Yep. And so that's, that's, this is what, uh, what I'm, I'm doing uh, as well is I'm building this, uh, this company, this corporation, for the family, so all the family members are part of the uh, of the corporations, and then our goal is really to kind of like uh, not only provide for uh, the the lifestyle of the current family members, but also looking at future generations, and then making sure that they are successful as well in their in their life endeavors and stuff like that. Uh, one of the, 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 the probably the most famous one that uh, did the family office or maybe even started this was uh, Rockefeller, I believe. So that's- um, Yeah, it's had, considered, so he had, he's considered the, you know, the creator of the family office concept. And they yeah. still have a pretty robust multifamily office today where they service mm -hmm. their own wealth as well as other families. Yeah, yeah. So that that's very good. Uh, so thank you for sharing that with us. So let uh, let's dive into some of the topics. I think that uh, that I want to hear from you. Your perspective is about the market. So the secondary growth market. We also talk about the different in terms of the the demographics of the market. Everybody is wondering where is this going. Are people leaving the cities? Are they, you know, are they staying where they are? Where's the, you know, wh what's going to happen with the markets and where should I invest? Should I invest in secondary market or stay, stay tight on my primary market? Yeah. So let's do some definitions first because I think it'll help. Mm -hmm. yep. What we define as a primary market is a top 10 gateway market. So think mm -hmm. New York City, Chicago, LA, San Francisco, um, Houston, et cetera. These are big cities, right? Very dynamic places. They're very expensive. But over the last, call it since 08, they've done very well. A lot yeah. of people have moved there, et cetera. 
for us, we've had an investment thesis that we think this maturing millennial generation, which is roughly 75 million people today, I'm barely qualified as a member, but I do, I'm just on the, the very front edge of it. It's now the largest working generational cohort in American history. And for a long time, there was a narrative on Wall Street that this generation of people would live in Brooklyn, wear skinny jeans, eat avocado toast, and live in an apartment building, never have children, never get married, and they would Uh stay in Brooklyn forever. What we started seeing is that clearly wasn't the case because of 2008, that family formation phase got pushed back three to five years than what traditionally yeah. you would see. So they mm-hmm. just didn't have the economic wherewithal to do it, but it was occurring pre COVID. And because of that, that generation was making a choice about where they want to live, work and play based on cost of living, quality yeah. of life and access to single family homes and education for their children. And when you kind of, take all that into account, secondary suburban markets make a ton of sense for them in terms of solving all the problems that they were facing. So we were seeing an exodus and a demographic shift out of primary markets to secondary markets pre-COVID. And I think what you've seen post-COVID is that trend line has just accelerated dramatically. Um, And when you think about where to put your money, where to invest, historically for any aspect of commercial real estate, it doesn't have to be office, it could be multifamily, et cetera. It's all about population growth and job growth. And so if you think demographics are destiny, which we do, following where people are moving, you know, should be a real tailwind for, for commercial real estate investing. Yeah. So and so some of your best pro- uh, secondary market, I would say, for you that we should be looking at and focused on what, what are they? What should they be? Yeah, it's, it's hard because some of the ones that I think are the most exciting are also very expensive. So in my own backyard in Nashville, um, if you look at Nashville, if you look at Raleigh, if you look at Austin, these are all yeah. sexy markets that we'll hear about mm-hmm. in the headlines. They're still considered secondary markets, but I personally think there's not a lot of value left to be had there. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of go to the next level and we're in places like Richmond, Virginia, Cincinnati, Ohio, Kansas City, Kansas. Yeah, yeah. Um, looking at yeah, these are good cash flowing markets as well. So our, our our thesis is on the we're looking for our strategies really to look for cash flowing uh, markets, cash flowing properties with um, some kind of increase in population. So good population, good GDP growth, and stuff like that, but not something that's sustainable. So we're not looking for something that's growing like five percent or whatever we're just looking for like just a slow one percent growth so that all the infrastructure and everything can be built and we don't end up in a situation where we have too much higher demand and not enough supply and then the the market goes uh the value goes too high that's right and and i'll caveat that with my prior statements of our investment thesis is all about capital preservation and cash flow so we're Mm -hmm. not swinging for the fences we're not doing development yeah we're looking for stabilized core plus passive income type investments. Yeah. And, you know, are we missing out on some upside by not being in Austin and Nashville? Certainly. Are we mm-hmm. also taking some risk off the table? Yes. But that's mm-hmm. just our investment thesis and strategy and what our investors want. So that's why we're in these markets. Yeah. And I, I think it makes sense because uh, your, your, your investment horizon, I would say, I mean, you're looking at multi-generational wealth. So you're looking at 
your generation, you're looking at your, your kids' generation and your grandkids. Um, so the, if you go for, for some of these markets that are super expensive right now, I mean, they, you don't know exactly where they're going to go, as opposed to some of these markets where they have a, a solid cash flow basis that you can really um, kind of ride for multiple years. I think this is, for me, I mean, obviously, that's what I think is a, is a great strategy uh, for, for long term. And then, yeah, it's going to grow in value. Uh, over time, but I'm not worried about, oh, the Austin market is going up or San Francisco market is going up 11% or it's going down uh, or this other market is going down or whatever. I'm really focused on, on the long term. And when, when you look at the long term, then it kind of all smooths out. Yeah. I mean, we tell people, look at this as a 10 year investment horizon at yeah. a minimum. And, you know, the nice thing and the difficult thing about real estate is that there's no scoreboard. It's not the stock market. You yeah. can't really do a mark to market every day. And I tell my investors, you shouldn't even really look at things on a monthly or even a quarterly basis. You should mm -hmm. probably look at things annually, right? How's the asset performing? Yeah. How's the market looking? And the nice thing is you can't just trade out of the deal. You, you can't just sell the building once you get scared or nervous or mm -hmm. you think the end is coming. You need It's e-liquid for a reason. And that's one of the best things I think is yeah. you should be looking at this on a long-term time horizon. That's right. Mm -hmm. For uh, a lot of uh, our, the people that we're investing, the investors that I speak to, I mean, we are, they're just getting started. Um, so we're recommending that they start with single family rentals. Uh, so that's a good uh, asset class. It's easy to manage, easy to handle. And then you have a little bit more liquidity. If uh, something goes wrong and stuff like that, you don't have to get rid of a, a 50 unit apartment building. Uh, you can just sell one house out of your, you know, 10 or 20 house portfolio, and then you can get, you know, get your cash flow uh, back on track or something like that. So that's one of our recommendations, a little bit more liquid, uh, easier to kind of like rebalance your portfolio if you have to. Yeah, I, I don't disagree. I think, you know, if you want to get into the business, single family homes and smaller multifamily kind of quadplexes makes a lot of sense because, you know, if you're investing in your own backyard, you understand the dynamics of the market really well, probably. You know where people live, where people go to exactly. work, where their country clubs are, where their schools are. And we've all lived in a single family home, probably, right? Or we've all rented an apartment. So you can understand those dynamics. I think once you look to diversify, that's where working with a sponsor or a fund probably makes more yep. sense. But yeah, I think getting into the business that way makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Yep. So thank you. Uh, the uh, the other thing too that I wanted to say. So you are mainly your portfolio uh, are mainly commercial, or do you have also like uh, like apartment building that you have rentals as well, or just commercial? Just commercial, mostly suburban just office. Commercial. Yeah. Okay. So how do you think? So suburban office. Okay. So yeah. So that's kind of one of the topics too that I, I was very curious about is kind of what's what's happening. We we talk about here in San Francisco, the Silicon Valley is kind of shifting. Um, and we're not, we're not sure where it's shifting to. Is it just going to be people are going to be working from home on the outskirt of Silicon Valley or here in LA, Silicon Beach? Or are they going to go and say, like, go to an office, but it's going to be somewhere completely different, like Austin or Pittsburgh or something like that? Um, so what, what, do you, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I'm biased because I'm a big believer <laughs> in office, right? So let's yeah. just put that out there and I'm not afraid about it. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, not to condition my response, but I think it's important to put some perspective and some framework around the answer. 
we all suffer from recency bias. So for a lot of yeah. us, the way we've lived the last six months, we forecast that that's a way we're going to live for the next six years. And that's typically mm -hmm. never the case. Yeah. Not just about commercial real estate, but about a lot of things. And what we've seen is this work from home phenomenon, this force experiment. At the very beginning, there was a lot of novelty involved. People were afraid of losing their jobs. And so productivity was really strong. Yeah. What we've seen post Labor Day is productivity drop off. Burnout has become real and it's kind of worn thin on a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and many employees don't really have, you know, I'm very fortunate. I live in a big house. I have my own office. Um, I can be productive. My children are in school. Yeah. That's just not the case for a lot of people. Yeah, so I funny. think what you'll see is, will the way we use office change? Absolutely. I think the trend line of the WeWork model where you had 75 square feet per user in these really tight spaces that were really mm -hmm. expensive build outs I can't imagine that's going to be the trend moving forward. I think the pendulum will swing the other way. Yeah. You'll have more traditional office layouts of 250 to 350 square feet per user and more typical traditional closed office setups. Yeah. Um, so hoteling and hot desking in these things, I don't think they make a whole lot of sense. And then, mm. you know, I think there's a difference between working from home and remote working and drawing that distinction is important here because when you actually read and see what Facebook and Apple and Amazon are doing. They're not saying work from home. They're saying not everyone's going to be in San Francisco anymore. We're going to, yeah. we're going to spread the workforce around. We're going to have more economic options for people. And we're going to be closer to where our employees are living. And I think yeah. that's the key. Mm -hmm. So will office change? Yes. Do I think it's going to be a secular shift like retail where it's just going to be a dying asset class? I don't believe that. I think it'll still be a fundamental part of our professional lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that for, I, I mean, I think for some of the big, in, in the Silicon Valley area, I mean, there was in, in San Francisco, there was a lot of uh, commercial projects that were going on. And then, uh, and when these projects were being built, uh, they had a set of assumptions as to how many people they would fit, how many employees would fit into this. And then they were still into this, uh, kind of like the we work mentality of, oh yeah, this is, oh, this is open space. This is so great that you don't have dividers and all of that. And you can look into each other's eyes as you work. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, and it's like now with uh, COVID, it's a little bit like, uh, okay, well, I don't really feel like that anymore. I want to have a little bit of a barrier and blah, blah, blah. And I want to have a little bit more distance. And so a lot of these assumptions are, are kind of, um, shaken a little bit if you you were pretending that you have so many employees of occupancy in an office building now all of a sudden it's like maybe it's only going to be 75 percent of that or maybe 50 percent of that you're going to have to put the so i agree i think there's uh, there's still a lot of companies that see uh, it as being very um important to be somewhat co-located and being able to meet somewhere and i think yeah they're gonna they're going to explore a lot more options um, to be outside of the, the normal areas. And I think they, they were already doing that anyway. If you look at uh, here in LA in Silicon Beach, you know, you have um, Google build a campus here, Facebook build a campus here. Um, so there's a lot of, a lot of uh, high tech companies that did that. They did the same in Austin, app, you know, Apple and all of that. 
and then in Pittsburgh as well, there was, uh, so they already, they were already doing that because it was getting a little too expensive. And now you kind of spread out. If you think of Corona as a, if there's going to be another Corona or SARS type uh, um, virus, maybe five or 10 years from now. So you want to de-risk your, uh, the populate your population or your employees being sick. So I want to spread out my employees, I think, in order to, so at least if there's a big crisis somewhere, then my employees are all spread out and I have a better chance of keeping my intellectual uh, or my intellect, uh, you know, safe and uh, healthy. So I think that that could be, that could play as well, I think on the, uh, in how these companies are going to invest in the commercial space. Yeah, and if you look at not what the comp- what big tech is saying, but what they're doing, mm-hmm. you know, they've been gobbling up office space in New York City at mm-hmm. a really good clip. They're getting great discounts on some leases and some buildings. And right now, the current number is about 225,000 more employees in the city than they had pre-COVID. Oh, really? Wow. So they clearly believe that that is going to be a fundamental part of their business and how yeah. they create value moving forward is that creativity and that collaboration that you were talking about yeah 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 so i think that yeah and if you're positioned right now into a secondary market like a smaller market and you have commercial space so you could be pretty well positioned because as these uh i have a company in san francisco and now all of a sudden i want to shift like uh, ten thousand employees outside then you know, you, you're not going to have 10,000 employees very often kind of moving into a, a little town. Uh, and so now if you have, if you own a little bit of commercial space in these uh, smaller markets, I think, yeah, you could be doing very well. I think that'd be a very good move. Um, so that's what you had in terms of the kind of like the, the re so that's what you saw in terms of the rebirth of the suburban office and then, uh, but still, it sounds to me like it's still pretty close to a major center, right? Yeah. These are typically, um, MSAs, so, uh, metro metropolitan yeah. areas with a million yeah. plus population. Okay. MSAs can be a really squirrely figure that yeah. people throw out there. It can be a chamber number that it's much bigger than, than you think. But um, yeah, I mean, our investment thesis was, or part of it was, is that every generation rejects their parents' way of life until they get married and have children and then they want the same lifestyle that they had growing up. And so our, my parents rejected, um, you know, in the sixties and the seventies, they would never live the way that their parents did. Well, guess what? They mm-hmm. all moved to the suburbs. They all had cars. They all sent their kids to the same school. And I don't think millennials are any different. For a lot of them, they rejected the way of life that they had growing up. But once they started having children, they didn't yeah. want them growing up in Brooklyn. They wanted them to have green grass, buy the yeah. SUV, send them to the great school, have all the opportunity. And mm-hmm. you know, I think suburbs and secondary markets, uh, called the boomerang generation, I-, I think it just makes a ton of sense for them. Yeah. The other thing, too, but when we look at that, I mean, they were talking about, uh, again, I'm pretty familiar with kind of like the dynamics in San Francisco, but they're talking about, yeah, there's all these people are moving out of San Francisco and they're going to Lake Tahoe, which is like two or three hours away, or they're going to kind of like Napa or some of the suburbs and stuff like that. But the capacity for these uh, secondary 
well, I, I'll call them secondary market, but I think based on your definition, they're probably even like tertiary market. Um, for the capacity for these small markets to absorb, you know, 10,000 new families is, uh, is not feasible. Um, so that and you can see right away that the these markets are booming right in terms of prices they're not booming in terms of volume of uh, of inhabitants they're just booming in that the prices are going are shooting through the roof uh, because yeah there's just there's no way for to absorb all these people so there's is bidding wars going on so and that if we're going to do this if there's going to be a shift and people are going to go there that means it's going to have to be you're going to have to do a lot more development in these uh, in these areas right yeah I, I don't disagree i mean i think what you see in i have much more connectivity to the northeast i'm from new york originally and i have a lot of friends still yeah. in the city and what you're seeing now is you know how do you 3x the classroom sizes for these schools in the hamptons or in westchester county or the hudson valley where all these mm -hmm. people from the city have migrated out to it's a real challenge um yeah. And there's no easy solutions there other than tax them more and, you know, build, but it's going to take time. And, um, you know, frankly, you kind of wonder, are they going to build these bigger schools just in time for everyone to go back to the city? I mean, yeah. part of my yeah. own thesis is places like San Francisco and New York, I think every 20 to 30 years, they get too expensive. There's some kind of price reset. Everyone leaves. They get gritty again, but they mm -hmm. become affordable for a younger generation to come in and become energetic and create businesses and, you know, get coffee and that kind of thing. And, yeah. and then it just kind of keeps evolving because I grew up in New York in the 80s, and 90s, where it was an awful place. It was dangerous. Yeah. It was dirty. Nobody lived there. And it kind of changed. Right. So I think we're just kind of in that part of the cycle where um, it's the natural progression of things in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, I think the pandemic maybe accelerated some of that like dramatically and and that because it, it accelerated that, then I think it makes it harder now for, for that to actually happen because maybe on a, on, a, on a natural cycle, let's say you're saying like every 20 years, there's kind of like, okay, well, this is too expensive. And I think we were kind of getting to that in San Francisco. People were kind of thinking before COVID, is like okay well this is a little bit too expensive i'm gonna look somewhere else and in fact i moved to la uh that's not exactly the reason but this is one of the reason one of the components of uh, why we moved to la because it was a little bit cheaper but um yeah maybe the natural cycle would have been that I, x number of people uh, would move out of the city and then go to other areas. And then that would kind of start the beginning of a trend. But now with the pandemic, instead of being X people moving out of the city, now it's 20X the number of people that are moving out of the city. And then the, the suburbs can't handle that. Um, so that's going to be, that's going to be interesting to see how that, how this evolves. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's going to be very interesting. So uh, the other thing to that, so talk that, about that. So in terms, you don't own any multifamily. So, but it sounds to me like maybe some of these markets, um, the people that are moving out of the cities, they're not looking for multifamily in secondary or tertiary market. They're looking more like for single family 
to raise their family and um, is that that's that's what you're thinking is that's what we're thinking I and mean, we don't mm-hmm. have any exposure to residential so i don't have a dog in that fight but i personally yeah. think single family rental and single family um just purchase makes a lot of sense for these people who yeah. are leaving these major metros and been going from an apartment i think they want the space i think they want the privacy i think they want the access to the outdoors and So um, maybe high-end condos would make sense for some of them, but I do think that single-family rental um, is a yeah. great play right now. We've yeah. seen a lot of private equity and institutional money go chase those deals. Yeah, so that's and uh, that's kind of what we're seeing. We haven't seen a dramatic change in Cleveland. It's been kind of going going very well for many years for us. Uh, we've seen an increase in value of about like 10, 10%, 12% in the markets, the sub-markets that we're investing in, all single family. Uh, so it's doing very well. The rents are also going up. Even in this you know, crazy time that we live in, uh, we see an increased demand. We see increased rent. And uh, so that's going very well. When we're looking back at, uh, at Memphis, this some of the suburb the single family there that's booming incredibly uh it's going very very well we had one house recently on uh, on the market one single family and we're trying to rent it and we had 58 people uh wanting to rent Mm. this uh, that visited that they said they were interested in that uh, house to 58 and we have apartment buildings as well we don't have 58 people showing up to go to uh, to see an apartment yeah you know so that's is incredible so i can when i saw that recently that's just like wow this is what's going on and then our prices have gone up like significantly also in the in suburbs of um, of memphis yeah we own uh, five assets in memphis we're a big fan uh-huh. of the market so mm-hmm. yeah yeah so uh, the other thing, so commercial real estate. So uh, so how do you think most of your assets are in office, right? Office towers that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. So how about the, uh, you don't own anything, but maybe you have an idea of what's going on with uh, the hospitality kind of industry and the, the restaurants and these these kinds of businesses. Any idea there and how, the, how that's, that real estate market is going to be affected for these businesses? Yeah, it's just getting absolutely crushed. Um, and I feel terrible for my friends who are in that business. Yeah. I think retail, you know, it was already struggling. That's a story that we all know. Bricks and Six retail was going the way of the dinosaur. Experiential mm-hmm. retail, I think, still makes sense. But those yeah. power center deals where, you know, you've got an anchor, grocery anchored strip center somewhere. I just don't see the value there. Um, And I think it's going to be very difficult to unwind some of those trades. Mm -hmm. Hospitality is a different animal. Um, I think, you know, it's just getting severely punished right now, but you can see a world in three or five years where you picking up things at a steep discount, you can make some real money in that space. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've seen some families and some private equity groups be pretty aggressive and risk on mm-hmm. buying up some hotel buildings. The, the, the one place that I think I'd be really cautious of is big city convention center anchored hotels. Yeah, I just yeah. think that that business is going to be really, really long time coming back. And yeah, yeah. if you're going to take down a hotel deal, pretty much everyone I've talked to says that you need to have about two years of carrying costs and you probably have to oh. buy cash. Um, so 
that's to use a to use a phrase that probably that's a big boy game. I mean, yeah, that is yeah. a risk on trade <laughs> where you've got to have high conviction. You really have yeah. to love the deal and you've got to be in it for the long haul. Mm-hmm. But I do think starting in Q1 and Q2, when a lot of these hotel people's throw in the towel, give the keys back and the servicers kind of go through that CMBS special servicing process. Yeah. I think there'll be some deals to be had, but there's a lot of private equity to dry powder on the sidelines. So I do think yeah. there'll be some active bidders there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm more bullish on hotel than retail by a, you know, a large amount. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, the, uh, so I guess before we go into the tax, uh, topic, so stock market, uh, any kind of uh, dynamics you see happening in the stock market where people are looking at the stock market, the way it is now, right now, and then, uh, whether they think it's uncertain, whether they think this is, uh, no problem, let's, let's go for, for the moon. <laughs> Do you see any kind of, uh, people taking their money out and moving it into real estate or the other way around, or how do you, how do you see this, uh, the dynamic play out? Yeah. Um, again, we have a network of call it 500 individuals and families, and we spent a lot of time talking to them during COVID lockdown. Certainly during April and May, there was just a lot of fear. People mm-hmm. were scared. They didn't know what to do. And, you know, a lot of them, didn't really understand what was happening. That really changed, I think, after Memorial Day when you know, the government really stepped in aggressively, the Fed stepped in aggressively. Yeah. And at this point, I think some people are looking to take some chips off the table. And the mm-hmm. sentiment, at least seems to me anecdotally, is you know, maybe there's 5% upside left in the market if, they're, yeah. you know, if the elections go smoothly, if we do a second round of stimulus, if the second wave of COVID isn't as bad as, as it looks like it is now, yeah. those are all catalysts to the upside. But yeah. it seems like there's more downside risk than there is upside risk left in the yeah. market considering yeah. how pricey it is. That's how I see it. The problem, the problem is there's no other good place to put your capital right now. Um, you know, fixed income is terrible. Um, you know, bonds are not paying anything. Private credit is really expensive considering the risk you're taking on. Yeah. And so if you're looking for a safe place to park capital and make yield, even though this is self-serving, I think commercial real estate is probably one of your best bets because the traditional dividend paying stocks are all cutting their dividends. Mm-hmm. Energy, I think, is really disruptive and it might yeah. not ever come back the way that we think it is. So I think CRE is still one of the better places to, to put it. But the market, I mean, it's priced in a lot of good news, in my opinion, and, and we'll see if that good news comes. <clears throat> Yeah, exactly. I think they they really they seem to be assuming that that the best uh, everything is going to happen, that the election is going to be smooth. There's going to be another stimulus package. The virus is going to be found and is going to be very effective and it's going to be on time. And also that the then the the, the consumption patterns uh, pattern is not going to change. So I mean that's going to be the other thing too. Is that um, normally if it's just a recession. You know, people can, uh, people, you know, they, they buy certain things, they buy their basket of goods. And then, and then there is, and then when there's a recession, they buy less of these goods and they, you know, some goods, they, they don't buy at all. And then the, the economy comes back on, then they kind of like, they bring back their old basket of goods and they keep buying. 
but now with this uh, with this pandemic and stuff like that, I think that 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 consumption is gonna is gonna change significantly. People are are gonna see things a little bit differently. They're gonna travel probably less for the next couple of years. They're probably gonna you know uh, still eat out a little bit less, or maybe there's gonna be a spike or something like that. But I can see that their their consumption pattern is gonna change. Yeah, and that's and, where you know the economy is not the stock market. The stock market is not the exactly, economy. Exactly. Exactly. The, the Fed and everything they're doing, they are daring you mm-hmm. to not invest in the stock market. They're doing everything they can <laughs> to push your dollars into the market. Yeah. Because if you've got cash like I do, you've looked yeah. like a schmuck for the last sixty days. Yeah. Because yeah. it just keeps going. Well, yeah. because asset prices rise when real rates are this low. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Fed has done a really good job. We will see if Congress will do their part to help the economy, the yeah, real yeah. economy out, because you and I both know that the unemployment numbers we see and the GDP numbers we see are not real. It does exactly. not reflect what's actually happening on the streets. Exactly. So um, I, there's, I think there's just a lot of fear. For me, I'm very scared to go back into the market um, mm-hmm. personally. Yeah. Me too. I have I have my money. It's, I'm all cash right now, so I'm just kind of like waiting either for the, it to go go down and then you know where buy a little bit. But uh, yeah, that's kind of how I position right now, which is not a position. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that's uh, that's very good. Thank you very thank you for your insight on that. So now let's talk. We have a few more minutes. Maybe we can talk about the tax advantages of owning a direct real estate investment. So a lot of people, uh, they're talking about, they want to invest in real estate and say, but I don't want to be a landlord. And um, so, and and when we talk about the returns on real estate for the the turnkey rental, for example, or the apartment buildings that we sell, we're really talking about just the basic, uh, either the cash on cash return or return on equity at the beginning or a cap rate or something like that to give them an idea of what they return of the returns they can they can expect but there's a lot there's another layer uh, uh below that uh that deals with the benefits uh of owning that real estate beside appreciation there's uh, tax advantages that you don't get if you invest in some other kind of uh investment vehicle yeah that's right. And, and one of the reasons I started the company is for commercial real estate, specifically office, there is there was really a paucity of good opportunities for taxable investors. Mm-hmm. And so but by that, I mean, you know, pension funds and endowments and these things are not taxable. Mm-hmm. And so the vehicles that they go into, the general partners or the people that run those investments they do not do things on a tax advantage basis because their, LP, yeah. their investors don't care. And so I think one of the biggest issues is individuals and families need to look at return profile net of taxes and fees because it makes a really big difference on your gross yeah. IRR versus your net IRR because you yeah. should not care what your gross is. You can't take mm-hmm. a gross IRR to pay your mortgage or pay your tuition. Mm-hmm. And so one of the best things about owning real estate directly through a syndication or, or if you're your own landlord is getting that K-1 because mm-hmm. through accelerated depreciation, cost segregation analysis, how yeah. you um, term the return of capital as opposed to uh, income. I mean, we're able to show losses on a K-1 for the first yeah. one, two, maybe three years 
mm-hmm. and you're getting a double digit yield. So, you know, is it going to be bootstrapped on the back end? Probably. But can you offset gains elsewhere in your portfolio with those losses? Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's tremendous. And not to get political, but with this whole Trump tax issue, I mean, he's leveraging. I was hoping you wouldn't bring that up, but no. He was le- he's <laughs> leveraging the laws of the books, right? And yeah, exactly. Yeah. Taking full advantage of them. And, you know, my wife got upset about it when she read this. And I said, we do the same thing. I mean, the, yeah. the, 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 the exactly. power that the tax code provides to real estate ownership is just incredible. And yeah. if your sponsors aren't taking advantage of it. You need to go look for a different person to run your money. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, nobody wants to pay extra, uh, extra income tax and stuff like that. And then these, these advantages are there. So even our single family uh, rental landlord, the people that invest with us, uh, just buying these properties gives you some tax advantages that you didn't have if you have just a regular nine to five jobs, right? Now, all of a sudden, there's some things that you couldn't expense that now, oh, no, I'm a business owner now. I can expense this, I can expense that. And then even though I'm making a net income uh, because of the cash flow, I'm making a net income on, uh, on the property, even a single family house, my depreciation on that sometimes offset at least 80% of uh, the net operating income, uh, the net cash flow of that property. So you kind of like, you're making money in the bank account, you're putting money in your bank account, but you're not, uh, you, that income is being offset by depreciation and other expenses. So you're, you're negative. Yeah, I mean, and, I think we all hear the don't fight the Fed. I think a better one is don't fight yeah. the IRS, right? The tax code is not a political structure itself, but mm-hmm. it, is a, it is a set of incent, incentives and disincentives to do certain things. Yeah, And yeah. you should not go upstream against the IRS. You should go with the flow. Yeah. And the tax code is meant for you to own more real estate. It is incentivizing mm-hmm. you to do that. Yeah, I think you should just embrace it. Yeah, I mean, when you think about it, I mean, for especially from my perspective, I mean, we are investing. We're buying distressed properties. We uh, we're renovating them. We're putting tenants in in them and stuff like that. So, I feel like I'm at, I'm really adding value to uh, to the economy and uh, providing value to the the investors and then the tenant as well. So it's beneficial what I'm doing, but if I can't, um, if I can't get the tax advantages that I need to do this, if it becomes like too costly for me to do that, then I'm just going to find something else to do or somewhere else to do it, to do the same strategy. So, so I think it makes sense. And, but I I found, what I found interesting is that the, um, I didn't write, I didn't read the New York times article, but, um, it seemed to me like they misconstrued or misunderstood or uh, didn't understand that this is how it works for everybody. It's not like he, <laughs> I, I think he did, he did something that were a little bit uh, unorthodox and potentially uh, not entirely legal. And I don't know that for a fact, but the, the, a lot of the things that the New York times were talking about from the excerpt that I saw was, yeah, this is like, yeah, you offset depreciation. Yes, you, that's, that's fine, you know, and yeah, you I mean, had the loss, you, you that's you, how it works. You have a carry forward on your loss. You exactly. refinance your properties every three to five years. I mean, that's all pretty typical stuff. Exactly. I, I'm not going to say, I, I'm not going to opine on what, what he did or didn't do. Yeah. But on a high level, this is what most commercial real estate operatives take advantage of. So. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I didn't. 
Yeah, I'm not a big fan of uh, of Trump, but I didn't see anything that was uh, too alarming and uh, what was reported so far. So, oh well. Uh, any, uh, yeah, any other topics? Any other uh, kind of? If somebody wants to get started in commercial real estate, I guess that would be a good question. Is how how do you get started? To me, that seems a little bit. Um, it's a little bit overwhelming, I think, for a, a lot of the, the, the investors that I talk to. The market is not as easily understood as uh, a single family rental or an, even an apartment building. Because, because, And then also, what kind of additional resources do I need uh, in order to go into commercial real estate? Do I need to have, not all of a sudden I have to have lawyers or do I have to have a special relationship with big companies that would rent my space so tell, tell me more about that yeah how to get I, I, started yeah and one of the cool things about what's happening now is this democratization of access to alternatives to individuals mm -hmm. and whereas 10 years ago you had to know a guy to get access to the deals etc now with linkedin and the internet and a lot of these platforms yeah all this education resources is free. I mean, if you go to, and this is not a plug, but if you go to our website, I mean, God. Oh, we that have... sure sounds like a plug. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's real, right? I mean, the reason yeah. we do this is we yeah, have, yeah. I mean, we have blog pieces, we have webinars, we have podcasts, we uh -huh. have um, everything you could think of that goes from as yep. basic as, hey, seven reasons you should do this to, hey, let's get into the nitty gritty on what, you know, cost segregation analysis is and how it works. Mm -hmm. We have everything that spans the spectrum. So if you have time, you can educate yourself for free Yeah. by going through our website or YouTube or LinkedIn. And you can message sponsors or people like me, or you can listen to podcasts like this and you can learn mm -hmm. a ton without having to put any money out there. So that's the first stop that I would do is, yeah. you know, leverage some of these resources, reach out to people, use your network, Get on the phone with someone like me and, and I'll be very open and honest with you about kind of what I think or I, th I think there's opportunity or risk. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, once you educate yourself, then you can go to where your conviction is. But I think what you need and what we talked about first is you need to have an investment thesis and a framework to make these critical decisions. You need to have a belief system of, hey, I think this is an overreaction because of COVID. I'm a big believer in San Francisco downtown office. I'm going to go all in or whatever it is, but you need to have some kind of structure to make these yeah. decisions because otherwise mm -hmm. it's just overwhelming. There's this universe of opportunities. So I think start educating yourself and then come up with what you truly believe and have conviction in and then start spreading it around. You know, I would not go concentrated on one play or one thesis. I would, you know, dip your toe in the water, get a feeling of how it works, and then you can kind of reallocate accordingly. Yeah, for us, I mean, the way we um, the way we work, we look at it. I mean, we kind of our goal was passive income, so that's that's what we were looking at, and then from that we looked at all kinds of different strategies to achieve passive income, and then we would look at the resources that we have, and then then we start looking at the markets, kind of like strategy, resource, market, and then we kind of like adjust and balance these three elements. Um, so of course, if you're interested in cash flow and uh, your strategy is to buy a commercial building in downtown San Francisco, uh, so I don't know if they cash flow or not, but uh, I know that the rentals don't. Uh, 
So yeah, I mean, I think it's right? cap cap rates are very challenging pre COVID. Exactly. I don't think there's been much of a price repricing post COVID, and no, I think in the near term it's gonna be very difficult. So yeah, I mean, I, I like the way you put it. Is what is your end game? Are you looking for this right big home run hitters? Are you looking for big IRR, big multiple? Are you looking for slow and steady? Really understand your risk profile, and then that'll take you to the investment style and the asset right. class accordingly. Because yeah. if you want to take on retail development, sure, have at it. You can make a ton yeah. of money, but it's a risk-adjusted return, right? So yeah. there's both sides of the coin. Yeah, and I think that's when you chart, when you look at the, your thesis or your idea of kind of like where do you think the market is going to go or what am I comfortable with. I mean, that impacts then kind of like your market. What market am I going to invest, invest in? It could also impact the strategy because as if, I, if I'm thinking commercial is going to be, you know, it's going, the office building is going to, they're going to go away for whatever reason. Um, then, oh, I don't want to invest in that. So that's going to affect your strategy in terms of, you know, I, I don't want to invest in commercial real estate. I want to invest in this, or I, I don't want to invest in Airbnb or that kind of stuff. So that affects your strategy, that affects your market and all of that. And of course, if you think that commercial and the way you presented it, it sounds like uh, I'm kind of curious about commercial real estate into these uh, secondary market, then, you know, that may be something that I would look at a little bit more and see how they're cash flowing and which market to look at and all of that. Just, and, uh, but again, the top thing is our goal. Is that going to give me the passive income that I need and stuff? So, well, very good. Brian, famous last words. Anything to add? Thank you for having me. I mean, where can people uh, reach out to you? Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, Excelsior uh, Capital. Um, uh, you can look us up on LinkedIn. I'm very active on LinkedIn. If you connect with me and shoot me a message, I'm happy to uh, set up a call with you and um, talk okay. on whatever subject you want. And then ExcelsiorCapitalGP.com is our website. You can sign up for our newsletter. You can get all of our kind of propaganda that we put out there and you can see for yourself, but we're very active. We create a lot of content and we'd love to have you uh, come check us out and learn about what we're doing. Okay. And then I'll put the link, um, the link in the, in the comment section so that people can, people are not going to type this. They just want to click on the link. I know. I know, I know. <laughs> all right. You. Excellent. Well, thank you, Brian. Thank you for uh, sharing your, uh, your knowledge with, uh, with us. And I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks Talk for to you later. Okay. Take care. Thank you for listening to Break Away from the Rat Race with your host, Eric Martell. If you want to share your story and experience with our listeners, please message us on Facebook at Break Away from the Rat Race. Also, please subscribe to our YouTube channel and our podcast on iTunes.